Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's been a minute since we have recorded anything. It's been a minute. I feel like we have been through a lot over this <laughs> over this last few weeks these last few weeks of craziness yeah but i you know seems to i think we're settling in a bit which is surely a welcome sentiment yeah i'm so tired of roaming around and being a nomad and all the things that go along with like not having a permanent place to stay and all that I'm ready to finally have a place of my own and like start classes again and get into a schedule yeah Feel, it feels weird because I've been I've been in classes for a few weeks now so I, I kind of have to correct myself and then remember that y'all haven't started yet but um cer- certainly you know it, it's kind of weird now but I think it'll also be weird when I'm just kind of in Ger- Germany over my winter break and like you know you being in classes and me figuring out what to do and where to go and things to see. So, and yeah. it'll be it'll be interesting. I think it, it should be fun, but we'll certainly... I'll give you a list. Yeah, certainly will we'll be a welcome <laughs> challenge, I think. Yeah, you'll get to use your German. Whatever German I've acquired at that point, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to kind of stutter out a, a few terms to, to get through. And at least I know like how to carry myself in Germany a little better. Yeah, I think there was a really big learning curve the first time we were in Germany together. Um, and I'm glad that like we'll have a quicker adjustment this time, yeah. it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm excited. So, yeah? Only, what, seven, seven weeks to go? Seven, seven weeks. And hopefully we have like our dates on this podcast to keep us going strong. Yeah. It'll it it it'll be it'll be interesting, but ultimately worth it, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So this episode of Parting the Atlantic covers the first four chapters of Genesis, starting with the beginning and ending with Cain and Abel. Um. So basically, our main two sections for today are Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Yeah, where do we where do we want to start? Just like Genesis one and power through. Yeah, I think so. I wrote down some themes and some questions along the way, um, that hopefully can guide us as we're discussing. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Genesis one is uh, for those that may or may not be aware or need refreshers. Uh, in the beginning, plus seven. I guess it's six days at the seventh. Um, of God creating the heavens and the earth and all the plants and sky and sun and all that. Um, I think one of the more famous books of the Bible. I think, uh, Mac, I'm, I'm curious what you picked up on. I, I, I certainly have a couple thoughts about this that, that stand out, but do you have somewhere you want to start? Yeah, for sure. I think a couple, I just was, um, this is like the fifth or sixth time I've read this in the past couple of weeks, just like preparing 
for re-recording this episode and like thinking about it again um the themes that I picked up on this time I remember like especially like verses one through six um really remind me of the mystic origins of Christianity this is something that I didn't know until I took religion classes in my undergrad but Christianity like early Christianity started with kind of this mystic cult tradition um and it just it reminds me that there's like there there is like mysticism and there is mystery um in the bible and there's this kind of like almost magic element in the first in the first couple verses um there's this like early on there's this contrast between dark and light which i think is really emphasized um, when compared to later in this first chapter, the abundance and creativity of God, like, you know, the first like 10 verses are a lot about this like shapeless, formless earth that starts taking on more and more uh, recognizable characteristics. And then verses 20 and 24, there's this kind of flourishing of life and abundance. So that to me is really interesting that there are these stark contrasts in the beginning. I, I wonder about like the, you know, if, if there's like a certain marker in these verses, like a certain turn where it goes from um, like, like what signifies that turn from barren to flourishing. And I, I, I there, there's a line in Genesis 2. I don't know if we want to skip ahead. Um, right away, but there's not in Genesis 2 that I think that stood out a little bit to me about this, and I think could be a good indicator, but um, it, it's definitely interesting, because, yeah, I was noticing when I was reading, like, day 6, it kind of goes from just, like, the, you know, land, water, sky, sun, all the way to suddenly you have every, pretty much, like, every living animal, like, you know, it goes from, like, God created the animals, and then God creates um, humans, and, you know, is, has just instantly, it's, it's kind of like the, the Cambrian explosion in a way, where you have this sudden in- increase in, in the number of living animals, especially. Um, do you think there's a turn there? Um, I, I, I can skim it, I guess, but do you think there's, like, a marker that may signify what kicks off that explosion? Definitely for me, it's the light. Like, as soon as there's, like, you know, verse 14, you know, and I I thought it was really interesting in verse 14 that it says, and let them, i.e. the lights, serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Um, And I think, like, after light, you know, there's sort of this possibility that occurs where, okay, now we've got this kind of differentiation between, like, land and earth, or, like, earth and, like, water and sky, and then all of a sudden with light comes the possibility of life, and I I think that's a really intentional parallel, Um, and you said earlier that Genesis is kind of one of the more well-known books of the Bible. I think that's intentional too, right, because not only is it like the beginning of humankind's story, 
but it's also sort of the first book that you turn to or that you read if you're reading the Bible chronologically. And I think like a lot of people start and end here, unfortunately, but yeah, I, I don't think it's a mistake that this book is first and that one of the first messages we come across is that light creates light. I also like the parallel there. Um, when it mentions Mark's sacred times and days and years, I think that could also probably be extended to consider marking just sacred life period and considering um, that, you know, during the day, I think, like, in considering the um, further on day six, when, when God um, creates mankind in God's own image, you know, you have, like, the brightest light, and I, I what the Bible says is, is God's most sacred creation, but also at the same time, there's light in the day, and the Bible says there's also light at night, so I think it's quite wonderful to, to be able to look at this the sacred nature of light and to be able to say that there's always light shining on what is God's most sacred creation um, and you know, that'll, that'll reach everything during the day but it, it's still there via the moon at night so even those like you know the bats and owls everything that comes out at night is still hit by the sacred light and is still uplifted in that way yeah I agree. I think that's really reassuring and it like drives home the message that light is life in that sense. Like life continues because light continues. Um, this something I've always like uh, thought about is the concept of a day in the in these first two chapters and the question I think the age-old like question like the darwinist question right i think it's really interesting to me that like darwin was a fervent christian and his he built his almost like he built his theory to correspond and coincide with christianity not to refute it um it's like kind of calling martin luther a heretic you know like darwin wasn't trying to oppose religion or Christianity in particular, he was actually using his knowledge of the natural world and his observations thereof to kind of explain it in a way and like frame it in a way that he understood. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering like, what is a day in these first two chapters and why does that matter? Or does it matter? I don't think that it particularly matters. I think, um, especially with uh, kind of the literal like this, I think when you look at like putting aside for a moment the you know Genesis one interpretation of of creation in seven days, the evolution of how the earth has been created has in many ways mirrored this very closely um and of course when the bible was written i i don't know if people knew that but of certainly like there were many fewer details about everything but even yeah. you know again you know we look back and you know the earth's created and then there's like just lots of rain and flooding for hundreds if not millions of years probably millions of years and then kind of over time we see land creation we see uh 
kind of microorganisms and that it kind of proliferates. So I don't think that necessarily like a single day is very significant. If anything, I think it helps to process and make sense of creation and how God operates and like how God perceives um, life. Um, I, I know we, we've spoken earlier before we were um, recording this about like the difference between like a human day and like a God day, if that makes sense, of like how God perceives yeah. time in that way and like do we consider you know, like, should we consider it to be a single human day? Like, in what terms should we consider it to be, like, a God day? Or, like, where does that parallel come in? But I, I think more than anything, it's it's the concept of a day here for Genesis 1 is, is more to make sense of creation and kind of take all this information that we have about creation and about how God works and kind of put it into, like, a nice, ordered understandable kind of bite-sized chunk and of course you know you can kind of break everything down but i don't i don't think a literal day in itself is important i think we view a day for this context in a broader sense yeah i agree i think what's really notable about like this the way that genesis 1 is structured is that it's showing us readers for the first time how God perceives time, which is so differently than we perceive time. Um, and th so there is this kind of like, it. there's also this like launching of an eternal perspective because the perspective is so much broader than the perspective that we live with in our daily lives, you know? And so, I think that's something that's been really important for me to consider like as I mature into adulthood is that God operates on a different timeline than we do um, and you know we might pray for something and years later it manifests you know and it's like that for God is the next second you know so it's, it's not about the timeline so much as it is about the results and like looking back at the end of life and having, I guess as Erwin Raphael McManus would say, like having struck your last arrow, you know, having, looking at the end of the day and having nothing left in your bucket to give, you know? One of the things that I took the most from this chapter was God's creation of mankind. Um, and I, I'm, scanning here to find the exact line again but um the verse 27 so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them. Uh, i would actually thanks for pointing me there i would look at verse 26 actually um then god said i'm using the new international version of that uh, means anything to anyone but uh, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness I think the use of our there, and of, of course the, the, the verse goes on after that. I think the, the verse, the use of our there is fascinating about whether we should pull anything from that about God's nature, about whether it's possible to, or... Um, 
Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Um, because the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uses so many different names for God, my guess when I read that was that it was a name for God in the plural. So possibly meaning like, I don't know. I, I kind of thought of it as like the Trinity, but I guess the Trinity, unless it exists at all points in time, you know, like it sort of didn't happen yet <laughs> at this point. So I don't know. I thought God was in plural just to represent like his many faces and his many being. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I My assumption was that it was a different word in Hebrew and that they were trying to replicate that in the English. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure fairly obviously what that separate word is. I think I would be interested to find out what that separate word would be. But I think that it, it, it really makes me pause and think about like, of course, we can't assume, you know, the the language forces us to assume that it, it's still just one God, and I don't think that changes, but I think, um, yeah, I, I think it, you know, depends on, it, it would be interesting to know how uh, Jews at the time when this was being written perceived God, actually, and, like, what the dynamic was, because Jesus hadn't come around yet, um, so what what mm. kind of what the source of that verbiage is to say in our image and you know like why we would perceive god more as like a grouping of sorts or like i i don't want to say as multiple gods but like multiple essences or multiple beings and like what that means for how we relate to god yeah yeah, I agree. And then, I mean, you know, you mentioned verse 27. It, it flips right back from our image to, to um, God created mankind in his own image. So that it, it shifts right back to that singular perception, that singular language of, mm-hmm. of one. So, like, do we take these as, like, how conjoined do we take this to be? Like, it's it's still one God, but, like, do we see it as one God again with multiple beings? Do we just... So, something to think about. Maybe, maybe some research that I can report back on in a later episode. It reminds me of um, Lorianic Kabbalah, which is an older, like a very ancient Jewish tradition that said, like, God released vessels onto, the, like, holy vessels into the earth. Like, he just kind of, like, I don't know, I almost imagine, like, you know, the space baby at the end of, uh... Yeah. <laughs> the Stephen Kubrick film? Yeah. Stanley Kubrick, whatever. Um, yeah, just, like, he just, like, released these vessels of light, you know, and, like, it's it's this wonderful... Today, it's often used as this wonderful metaphor for, like, us ourselves being the lights that God released at the beginning of time. Um... And there, there is, like, from my long-ago studies of Lurianic Kabbalah, there, it does seem like there is a plurality. And I think, you know, the fact that God is a singular entity and that God is often taken in the plural, for example, with the Trinity, those are, like, two seemingly disparate images or views of God, but they represent the same being. And I think like it's okay to kind of sit in the dissonance of that and like sit in the discomfort of that of like 
you know, at the same time, there's this, there's two different, or many more, but these two different representations of the same God. It's like, it's almost like our human capacity tricks us into thinking that we have to understand everything in order to, for it to be true. But, you know, it's, it's, it's God. We literally do not have the capacity to understand God. Yeah from my opinion and my experience. So it's kind of like, there will be dissonances that you come across and there are some battles worth fighting with regard to those dissonances and doubts, but there are some that also I think it's better, at least for a time, to sit in and just try to like feel that discomfort. Well, the, the, the clock's ticking, so what do you say we moved to Genesis 2 here? Let's do it. Um, I, I think that w- among the more fascinating things about Genesis 2 to me is that the seven days don't end in Genesis 1. They end in Genesis 2. Uh, so we get through like yeah. all of the creation of you know the earth and the sky and the sun and the stars and life. Um, and it just kind of ends after six days. And I, I, I had always remembered the seven days where God rests on the seventh and assumed it was Genesis 1. But no, it is Genesis 2 which I think is an interesting choice to make of, of splitting that up. Um, and, and Mike, I, I wonder if you have thoughts. I certainly have an idea of, of the effect that that has on how it's read, but do you have thoughts about it at all? I, I, I can jump into my theory. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's the preamble to Adam and Eve. Like, it's to differentiate the seventh day from the six days, you know, previous. Like, to me, it's like having a clean break. One thing that I noticed in this reading was in verse two, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Um, I didn't, like, pick up on that finishing part before. (laughs) I don't know why, but uh, it kind of, like... God continues to do more work after the seventh day, like he creates, you know, Adam and Eve and everything, but like, or like, I guess kind of sets up Adam and Eve in that sense. But like, I don't know, this like finishing part really struck me. Um, and I have a question, but I'll let you get to your theory first. I, I yeah, I, I was gonna say that more or less the same thing about how, you know, kind of you have the break in, in chapters and you started um, having rest as the first section of chapter two I think sets a better tone for chapter two rather than um, immediately going into Adam and Eve so it, it creates kind of a more relaxed and, and comfortable tone I guess to, to, yeah. to set the scene I guess for the Garden of Eden and, and uh, you know, what it was like for Adam and then for Adam and Eve both to live their pre-serpent encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question is, how do we build in the practice or the ritual of having a seventh day in the modern world? Um...
I think uh, de- depending on how one lives in the modern world affects how we um, react to this seventh day. I think the the key line here from verse two is on the seventh day uh, he rested from all his work. I don't necessarily think that the seventh day in and of itself is essential, but I think it's more about resting from your work. Um, and then the, the, the chapter continues on, verse 3, uh, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. I think um, taking that time to not only rest from your work, but also kind of appreciate it and care for it, um, and look at it holistically, and, and I think in no small sense, make it holy and see God in it and and be present with God and, and take the time to, um, yeah, to, to, to reconnect with God and, and, and step back from what you're doing. So I think this looks different in different contexts. Of course, you know, I, I can't hit every single one, but, um, you know, whether that's, actually taking a Sunday off, whether that is, you know, taking time at the end of each workday, whether that's, um, you know, using all your vacation days or really pl- plugging whatever it is that fits best. I think being able to step back from your work and to be able to, you know, make it holy, as verse 3 says, and, and, and appreciate it and, um, unite with God is is the center of what this verse encourages us to do. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you framed that because it's almost like the seventh day, the way that you posited it was like a challenge to view time outside of time, like almost to view time like God views, views time. You know, not literally like every Sunday you take a break like maybe that is your way of taking a seventh day but also there is kind of this like call to action there where there's like and this is this is something that I don't do enough is take a seventh day I think it's really hard for me to feel finished with something um I think especially because the nature of my work which is like as a researcher um it's really tough to feel finished with a project when it's not published or when you know it's not past the final stages of review even though like the writing is done it's just being reviewed (laughs) or something like you know it's really hard for me to feel finished and I guess with other more mundane things too what do we think about one thing that oh go ahead oh go for it go ahead ahead. uh one thing that I really picked up on in in like chapters one and two is that in chapter one verse 28 um the language says to rule over i'm also using the niv like god kind of created mankind to rule over the earth but in chapter uh, two verse 15 the language changes distinctly from to rule to work and take care of the land or the earth and I think that's really that really stuck out because there's this posture of like caregiving almost 
to the world and to what we're given. Um, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as I've been going through the process of immigration to Germany and like a lot of the bureaucratic steps. And for me, a lot of the way that I posture myself towards immigration and like towards being welcoming of the like bureaucratic process is to think about it as something that I need to take care of and something that I need to like care after as a child almost. So I'm wondering about, I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Um, I think it, I don't think that the term rule in this scenario means literally like a king rules. I think it's, um, I don't think so either. Yeah. Looking at it like, um, human, the way that humans are built and the way that we have evolved over the last, um, you know, probably since, you know, we, we really got all, you know, the ability to have power over nature that we do, you know, like, I was going to say a few hundred years, but it, it goes back a lot longer than that, like, you know, developing agriculture and, mm-hmm. like, societies and all that. Um, in the sense that we're created in God's image and likeness, we have that level of having power over the earth and, um, having the discretion to use the earth as we choose and that's becoming quite the discussion you know with with especially like with climate change and you know people are saying how do we use the resources that we have on earth you know how do we like there's you know you know we, we've seen the effects of of just kind of powering through and polluting so much and now we're kind of looking into like what are the details of how we move away from that and like what to what extent do we mm-hmm. um you know like do we start using batteries what are the effects of batteries and charging them and still making pollution so i think like there's the essence of our ability to use the earth as we choose but also at the same time we have this call that you mentioned to not overstress creation to not like pollute it basically or not to misuse it or um really to 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 protect it and and to treat it as holy and of course you know we still need to grow food and we still need housing and shelter we still need to get from one place to another but how do we move toward a system of doing that in a way that cares for creation that restores upholds that protects um, instead of just using resources unabashedly without thought. Yeah, it reminds me of the like parable of the four lepers, where um, there are four lepers outside the city gates, like during a war, and like it's a desert. It's crazy. And these four lepers have been scorned by society, they're starving, and the city has been besieged by another people, and the lepers decide we're going to go into the city and we're going to try our luck, basically. Um, And they walk into the city and the army that's taken over the city thinks that the four lepers walking in are like a battalion of troops, so they flee the city. And the lepers take over the rest of the city, they pillage and they plunder 
they've saved gold and whatever uh, and then they start taking more than they need but eventually they realize that the city that was left to them was also if it was a god-given gift a gift to be distributed to others you know so they go and they actually go to the people of that originated in the city and share the wealth of that that was left behind and i think like there's a really like interesting there's a lot of interesting points there but you know that that like imagery of like four lepers like the bottom of society people who are literally being eaten alive by their own flesh like they the poorest of the poor were able to take it upon themselves and share you know when they it, that was like a conscious decision of theirs and yet like people who have so much today like never think about posturing themselves in service of other people I, I I think that's yeah it's it's you know we risk just diving into a whole conversation about what it means to to protect creation but I also think it, it is quite you know increasingly so like really a critical conversation to have um, and to put spotlight on um, I I. I guess the fall is the next chapter, so we don't have to um, skip right to that. But I wonder what you think about, like, that notion of, like, making, you know, sharing what you have with others and and not really overstressing um, with the ending of this chapter where uh, Adam and Eve are both naked and feel no shame. What's the, what do you think is, like, the parallel there between, like, protecting creation and, and, and giving of yourself to those in need and, and kind of not having shame. Yeah, I do think I was also going to highlight the end of this chapter um, with where like the author kind of elaborates that like in marriage like that's like kind of the parallel of marriage, right? That like the two become of one flesh again, like they leave their father and mother and become one flesh with another person, Um, which is obviously like very relevant for us coming up. Um, But yeah, I think that there is like a reminder there, right? Of like, on the one hand, there is this sort of willful ignorance that Adam and Eve take on because they haven't eaten from the tree of knowledge. Um, But there's also this like, very important oneness that they have tapped into and they refuse to let go of you know and that's something that I was definitely reminded of on my world trip was that we're all one people you know it's not like we pretend that we're like you know 50,000 million different like tribes I guess but we're we're all one people um we're all one flesh in that sense um and so that's, I guess that's what I, how I conflate the two is like, like Adam and Eve, like this sort of willful ignorance of 
all of the ways that we can divide ourselves, we are one people. How do you reconcile that with the second to last verse where um, it says that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh? What's the, like, the, how does that statement of separateness, I guess, play into the same unity? Where you have, you know, like you're in a such a position where you're not one flesh and then you become one flesh. Yeah. Um, to me, marriage has always been like the closest inner circle of a concentric circle. Yeah. You know, like all of humanity is in one circle. And then there's separate circles within that one circle you know it's when you tie like your life and your soul to one person there is a different level of connection there necessarily so that i wouldn't say like you know for example like when i say like we're all one people i'm not saying that we're all basically in the same relationship with one another around the world that we are with someone we would be married to. But I am saying that there is this like oneness that's inherent in all of life and in all of creation that we shouldn't ignore and that there's a deeper, more personal, more like centric level of connection in a marriage that is not found in like the whole people of the world. Well, on that note, should we should we get to the fall? Wait, what do you think about that? Oh, we're not moving. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I think my reaction would be. Um, when when we look at how God creates Eve, um, and and pulling Eve out of Adam's rest, I, I rest out of Adam's uh, rib. I think it, uh, yeah, I, I, and I mean, it really points to, to marriage as, as creating one flesh like that. I, I think even I could claim that, like, you don't even necessarily need marriage because, I mean, I think later verses do refer to Eve as Adam's wife, but, um, I think in some sense before we reach that I think it depends on what your idea of a marriage is and I think when we look at like legal marriage as as it exists in like the US for example um, I think it in, in some sense it, it can be separate from marriage in a way that God sees it and the way that God calls upon us to interact with the people that we're close with um, and sure. how you know in you know some way we get married in God's eyes and like do we need a marriage ceremony to do that do we you know can a certain level of commitment to another person constitute a faith marriage I guess I don't know what the, the, the proper term is but um are you talking about sister wives, John? 
Um, I don't condone polygamy. I don't think that Christianity supports... Well, yeah, I don't think Christianity supports the taking of sister wives. But, no, I I mean, like, just in a more general sense, like, when you look at how intimate relationships are upheld, um, what it what it means to be what it means to come together as a couple in that regard um and i completely forgot where i started with this or where i'm going but that is um (laughs) okay let's move on let's go to the fall uh i'm gonna say john that for us a marriage ceremony is in order I'm not. I'm not into like the spiritual marriage thing. I, 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 I'm not saying that, you know, marriage, legal marriage is unnecessary. But um, <laughs> I know what you mean. I like there is a the the spiritual component of marriage, is not. That that doesn't inherently go along with the legal component of marriage. Yeah. You know, like there there is a separate spiritual commitment. I get that. Um, but yeah, let's move on to the fall. <laughs> um, I, I think, it, um, I think the serpent's depiction here is really interesting of how the serpent exactly tricks Eve by saying, oh, like, the first verse he asks, uh, you, you know, did God always say you must not eat from any tree? And then when Eve confirms, oh, we could eat from a tree, it's just not the specific one of good and evil. Um, I, I I think it's interesting how kind of the servant kind of breaks it down and I think in a sense makes it seem like not as big of a deal as it did before. Like, oh, it's just one tree. Of course, you're not going to die if you eat from one specific tree. I sort of agree. I see it in a different way, though. I see it as the serpent attacking the mo- the deepest like wells of belief first. So the reason why he goes very general is because he's planting doubt in the places that matter to start. Yeah. Like he's planning like he's like why are you prohibited from anything? And then it's, why are you prohibited from this one tree? Yeah. Why are, you know, why does God say X and Y and Z specifically? Yeah. So for me, it's like, that's the insidious part about it, is that, like, he hits where it counts yeah. right off the bat. And it seems like, that's why I think this, like, whole chapter is really tricky for me, like, historically, but also when I read it today, is that, like... It it's it seems innocuous, but it's not. <laughs> it's it's so like it's like deeply troubling to like realize that like this is the kind of force that upset the 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 path of the world. It, I think either way, it is like a you know. You can, so often in the Bible, like, there's, there's the um, notion of, like, needing to be on guard against sin. 
um, and like being cautious of how it snaps up at people. Um, and it's, 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 there, there, there's a line in, uh, the Cain and Abel story, which is the very next chapter that says like, where God tells Cain, like, um, you know, as long as you do the right, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, of course, but like, as long as you do the right. Oh, I got it. It's verse seven. I've already pulled it up. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Yeah, I think the start of Genesis 3 with the serpent is a perfect example of that, of like how sin will will use these very cunning ways of, of, of getting to people. Um, and of, of, of course, like I, I'm no saint, like I, you know, I don't nail it perfectly every time either, but I, th- I think it's an, an yeah. interesting parallel to come like from original sin and then turning around to Cain killing Abel right after hearing from God that sin will, you know, kind of snap up and then and, and, and bite you if you're letting it and you're not being careful. I think it's, it's, it's a strong way to kick off such a message, which I think is quite possibly intentional and also um, with adequate thought is rather powerful yeah i agree i agree is it significant to you that eve was the one who fed the fruit to adam like that adam wasn't the one who kind of fell first in that regard no i think it's I think that's more of a statement about just humanity in general. And I mean, I, I know that, like, people will say, oh, you know, it, it's it's the woman that caused the fall, and the woman, therefore, has all these extra limitations on it. But then, like, you turn around in the very next chapter, and you have a dude murdering a guy, right? So I don't think that... I, I, I think that saying that there's any significance about, you know, at least from a gendered term about the women woman being the one that causes mm-hmm. the fall about being Eve is very short-sighted and, uh, and quite a limited belief. Yeah. Moving on, I think, you know, in this chapter in particular, the power of doubt was really evident for me. And I'm someone who, like, fervently thinks that doubt is necessary to have a strong faith relationship. Like, I just, I don't think that strong faith can develop or exist without doubt and that's I know that's something that seems like a little bit counterintuitive but I think doubt is really important because if you use it right it's it gives you the right questions or not the right questions but it gives you good questions to ask and good avenues to go down and it keeps your curiosity alive you know, yeah. for it, and you're like hunger alive for faith. Um, so, I mean, doubt for me has been actually an important tool in my faith, and I don't see it as a hindrance. Um, but here, it like undoubtedly <laughs> is a hindrance. Yeah. Um, you know, that you can see that when Adam and Eve both blame other people <laughs> when God asks them, Why did you eat of the fruit? But Adam is like, Because Eve did it. <laughs> Even Eve's like, Because the serpent told me to do it. You know, like, there's no agency and I think that like the doubt that they have not only of 
their faith maybe in those moments, but also of themselves cripples them to see the truth of the situation, which is that they made conscious decisions. Yeah, I I think a critical part of that scene too is we can't forget just how prevalent shame is in this chapter. Um, from how yeah. they go like in chapter two of feeling no shame to suddenly like boom, um, you know, I think in, in in no small sense at least for the situation as as much shame as they could muster right like here here they are completely mm-hmm. utterly vulnerable and they have just mm-hmm. violated the one thing that of all things or people god told them specifically not to do right like it's that kind of that saying or like you had one yeah. job and your one job was just to <laughs> like just just live and don't eat from the tree and somehow they managed mm-hmm. not so um but at the same time like there is that shame and god makes the garments made of animal skin for adam and eve at burton verse 21 so it's like it's like this interesting like pinioning of these two themes of like shame and and wisdom almost of like god knows that there's no undoing what they did uh and he like even i think that's like uh i will tie this together in this way (laughs) like many people say that the old testament god is different from the new testament god the old testament god is very like uh wrathful and vengeful and just kind of smites people all the time and the new testament god is like forgiving and more like developed and caring but i see this as a way to reconcile the old and new testament pictures of god um because god made adam and eve garments he kind of saw their shame and decided to move forward and decided that not all hope was lost with them i i yeah i i think it's it's more than anything the first time that we practically see God's love for humanity um, of like even when we just hit our complete rock bottom God's still there to to be present and support us and love us uh, just the same as God did before um, and I, I think it's it's an important reminder as we do jump into the Old Testament where there are plenty of times where God's just ready to kill people and ready to be like, I am going to smite mm-hmm. an entire city now. Um, and, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to all these scenes, but like, you know, there are times when uh, prophets will just stand up for humanity and be like, you know, whoa, God, calm yeah. down here. Like, remember that you created these people and that, you know, you love them and God will kind of return to this theme that we see here in, in Genesis 3 of, of, you know, having that, you know, like, almost like abandonment of, like, feeling that humans are not living up to their commitments to God, but still loving them and still, like, supporting and being present for it. Yeah, I agree. All right, we've got limited time. So Cain and Abel, 
is our last chapter for today. There's... I think for for me, as we've been like talking, a big theme that we've hit on is the agency of people. Um, in the beginning, in chapter one, God is the one who has all the agency, right? And like you can argue, sure, God has like the agency at all times. I do believe that, but. At, you know, at the same time, there's this shift of, like, in chapter one, God is the one who na- names everything, for example. And then in chapter two, verses 19 and 20, Adam takes over the naming. And then kind of, like, God gives some semblance of agency to mankind. And so I think that this, like, theme of agency is really important. Um, and I think... What's interesting is we have another like manipulation of time at the end of this chapter um, where God is kind of choosing to represent time through the writer of this chapter through people. Like time is passing and the way they're marking that is through the people's lives or like through the people who are born specifically. This is definitely a theme in the Old Testament, but I think it's no different from like saying that there were seven days in the beginning you know there's this very interesting shift of agency and like shift of like focus to people i think uh we we would do ourselves dirty if we got away without talking about the key focus of kate and abel um which is kate killing abel um, and uh, the Sparknotes version is basically that uh, Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. God prefers Abel's, and Cain gets upset and kills Abel over it. Um, yeah. I think that as I was reading, uh, as, as I've read the th- three this two or three times for um, prep for this, I think the thing that stuck out to me most is that uh, when god realizes what has happened and he banishes kate um and i will say as a tangent big themes here adam and eve sin are banished kate sins and is banished interesting interesting parallel <laughs> there. um and I, yeah. I, I i we we could have a whole separate discussion about what it means to be in a holy space and be banished from a holy space and what is a holy space but um i think one of yeah. my uh one of the things i took from this each time is when God marks Cain so that no one uh, who found him would kill him. That's uh, Genesis 4, yeah. verse 15. Um, any any thoughts about why why that would be, why God would choose to protect Cain from, from death? There are two ways to look at this. Um, one is the ultimate act of mercy. You know, that even though... You know, I think like Cain, the way that he reacts to God's punishment of banishment is like, well, the first person who come across who comes across me is going to kill me anyway. So thanks, God. It's it's like this catastrophizing. So you know, it's almost like in one way God is being ultimately merciful to Cain and kind of allowing him to continue life, even though it's not a life inside of the holy realm. Um, another way to look out of it, though, is, like, the ultimate punishment, right? Because, like, he's, he's kind of forcing Cain with these, like, like, almost, like, disabilities, in a sense, of, like, he can't grow 
like crops on land and everything. So he's kind of forcing Cain into doing, into full, like fulfilling his lifelong punishment. What do you think about that? I, I also think when, when you were mentioning the ultimate mercy of, of Cain, of like having this be a punishment and that like, you know, Cain commits such a sin and is now like, well, just resigned to the prospect that he is going to be killed himself and having this as a punishment mm-hmm. of being that he is not going to get what he expects or, you know, I, we could have a conversation about even maybe what he wants. Um, instead, he needs to live with the fact that he kills his brother, and he just needs to continue living on with that. Um, I don't know if we have enough time to get into the dynamics of Cain being inside or out of the Holy Realm, um, but I, I, I think that's what I attach to most, of like, what is the Holy Realm and how does Cain does and how does Cain exist and or out of it um, and what does you know the, 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 the family house I think and, and much of the bible is seen as like the holiest part of the world I guess maybe you know, besides the temple like you have the temple where God lives and then you have like you know my father's house basically um, and by, in, in yeah. biblical terms so to, to be banished from that it is, is to, to be sent you know, again, I, you know, I mentioned the parallel with the Garden of Eden. Both Adam and Eve and now Cain have been sent away from what was in the context like the most holy thing in life. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about like how that works with still seeing Adam and Eve and Cain all as children of God that God loves and how God continues to love them despite the evil that they've done yeah I think I'm reading proverbs lately and a lot of the like proverbs talk about like when people stray it's more like God laughs at them you know and and, like God mocks people who mock um so it's almost like these punishments I kind of see them in a way as the biblical characters getting a taste of their own medicine (laughs) and kind of like being mocked because they're mockers you know um so i i don't see like there's definitely a conversation that we should have at some point about like what it means to be banished and whether that's permanent and in what cases like what are the like you know steps or (laughs) what are the criterion for permanent banishment and is there such thing um but that's my immediate thought is like god loves them period you know that's kind of like the beginning and ending of everything and when his children are stupid he'll laugh at them yeah what do you say we end up there sounds good ma'am well it has all right i love you it has been thank you for this of course. Uh, looking forward to the next one. Yes. I love you, ma'am. I love you too. Bye. Bye.